Welcome to HeCast, the official podcast of He Changed It. Once again, I am your excited host, Mike Chisholm. I'm always happy to be here. I'm always happy to talk about where He Changed It is going. Come and join me within the He Changed It HeCast community. You can come and hang out with me there. Uh, He Changed It is moving leaps and bounds. We're growing like crazy. Uh, All sorts of amazing, amazing things as this company is growing and doing its thing to... uh, create awareness and give that place for, for men to go digitally. Um, now I, I am always excited to be doing one of these. Um, always. Uh, we've done a couple dozen of them already and I've been excited during every single one of them today. I will admit I'm a little bit more excited or maybe I'm excited in a different way. That might be a better way of putting it because the person on the other end of this broadcast, unfortunately we're not in studio because of, of uh, COVID stuff which is too bad, but the other person on the end of this podcast is one of the people that I enjoy spending time with more than anybody. If I'm going to take a night, a pleasure night, just a night where I'm just going to be carefree and and have some fun, um, I am honored to have this man as a friend of mine who I have in my Rolodex of people that I can call who is always up for an amazing time. And he happens to be not just into a lot of the same things that I'm I'm into, but he's actually in the industry of one of the things that I have loved more than anything in my whole life, and that's comic books. Um, the gentleman we're about to talk to today has uh, an illustrious career, a long career in uh, comic books, in the world of entertainment, um, everything from motion pictures to animation. Um, he's worked for DC comics for a long time as a writer illustrator. He's a freelance guy. He's worked for the Simpsons and Matt Groening's uh, imprints. He's worked for, um, you know, all sorts of different projects, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the cartoon, the original one. Um, I mean, my goodness, the, 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 the ability that I have to, to, to talk to this person as a resource is phenomenal, but even more so he's a friend of mine. He is one of the coolest people I've ever met. Um, a singer, amazing, amazing artist, John Delaney. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here on HeCast today. My absolute pleasure, Mike. And I couldn't have said my introduction better than you said. With emphasis <laughs> on the friendship thing. You're the man. <laughs> okay. And we're off to the races. Here we go. Um, <laughs> I first met you, you moved, I, I, I wish that I could go to my office. I've got an office downtown where I have a couple of pieces of things that you have, have given to me over the years. The first one though, I first became aware of you uh, living in my city when we had, um, we had sort of a, uh, a fan expo here and you go to a lot of these comic cons and fan expos, the big ones and the small ones and the local ones. Um, but you've been to some of the biggest ones around San Diego, Emerald Con, all of the wizard world, all of them, right? Yeah. I've been very, very fortunate. Like I, uh, this year alone, I did New York, I did Chicago, I did Miami, I did, uh, Florida, I did, um, uh, what do you call it? Atlanta, which was amazing. Dragon Con, that was incredible. Seattle, Portland. Uh, yeah, we, we really, um, we're inundating the, the Comic Con, uh, schedule this year and it's been wonderful. I, it's one of my favorite things, DC uh, and Bongo, who are, it's Matt Groening's imprint, uh, Utrama and The Simpsons. They're very, very well loved those properties in, in those comic cons. So it's wonderful. The fans are nothing but generous and they, they come up and they line up and it's really lovely and you get to meet them and do sketches and stuff. And so uh, so I this year I, I spent a lot of time doing comic cons and it's, it was wonderful. But I'm a big uh, advocate for doing the smaller cons too. You are, and I appreciate. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, one day I have a so I have a financial business, and and one day one of my agents uh, got really excited. He goes, "Mike, I, I need to see you at the office today." And I said, "Okay." And he knew that I'm a big comic book fan, and he shows up with this with this sketch, and it's of uh, it's of Batman, and he's at a slot machine, and he's pulling the slot down. I, I should have I should actually take it out of the frame and bring it home so I could for context so I could show it here in the in the studio here, but. Um, and, and Batman was, he actually had a little bit of a smirk on his face because he just hit three bat symbols on the slot machine he was playing and the slot machine was paying out like crazy. And it was the, the coolest sketch in the world. And it was, it was more than a sketch. And I'm looking at it going, holy cow, who did this? And he goes, I went to a fan expo and it said to Mike, all the best. And, uh, or uh, no, it's something cooler than all the best. I forget what it is, but 
And he said, he said, this guy, John Delaney, a DC artist did this for you. And I couldn't believe it. I was blown away. And I said, how long did it take him to do this? And he's like, Oh, you know, about a minute. Maybe not that fast, but yeah, I can, I can move on pretty, pretty quickly. I've been very fortunate. My background in animation helped a lot with that. Um, when you're working in animation, you're drawing 25 drawings to every second of animation. So you get really, really quick. You start to build up the, the speed and understand that the most important things are not the details, it's the forms, the shapes, figuring out the actual shots. And then once you've got all that down, then you just put in all the details. So at a Comic-Con, yeah, I'm, I'm quite um, adept at being very, very quick, which is why I get things like lineups and stuff, because a lot of the other artists, and this is certainly no detriment to them, they put in so much heart and work into the work they're doing. But I understand that one of the things about a Comic-Con is people are in a hurry. They want to meet everybody. They want to see a bunch of the different displays. So I try to keep it real fast and make it real fun. And so I don't charge a ton for them. I just do these really, really quick sketches, throw a little bit of color in them, and then give them to them. Then it's something they can take. Um, it's not going to cost them a fortune where they go, God, I blew all my money on that one sketch and now I can't do these other things. My whole thing has always been about make it an experience. So uh, like I said, I go to the smaller cons for that very reason, because a lot of times people just don't have the money for that. And even in a place like Atlanta, right, you've got such a disparity between wealth and, and people who don't have wealth, but they all want to go. So my whole thing was just make it so that they can, you know, throw 20 bucks at me and I can give them a single drawing of Batman and it's going to make their day or something. So. Well, and, and yeah, and I've seen evidence of that many times over so many times. One thing I love about you is when we go to a restaurant or we go to different places, you almost always have your sketchbook with you. And, and, and it's funny how even in a, in a, in a small city like this, you get recognized um, and, and people will ask for all sorts of different things. I'm a huge Shazam fan. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a Marvel guy from a, from a storyline standpoint. If I had to pick, I'm picking Marvel, except my favorite superheroes are both DC. I got two Batman and, and Captain, the original Captain Marvel Shazam are my two favorite heroes. Um, but just some of the stories in Marvel have captivated me a little bit more, but it's so funny how people will gravitate to you and you'll just whip out a, a picture of Shazam, just like that for me. And, and, you know, Mike, you are the real captain. And I look at it, I'm just afraid to put it in my office. It's like crazy. Um, have you always been this, like, was it, was it a skill that you had? Like, were you one of those kids before kindergarten where it's like, holy cow, look what John has made. Or has yeah. this been a skill that you have refined over the years and just put so much work into, and that's how you've gotten so good. Well, I think it's both. I was born into an artistic family. My mother is an amazing artist. Uh, my brother and I actually owned an animation company in Vancouver called Delaney and Friends for years. He's a very, very talented artist. My other brother, who's a lawyer, is an amazing painter. We were always very encouraged to be artistic. Okay. But I did realize very early on that I had a much more natural predilection towards it. And realizing that, I also realized how short my skill level was. My talent level was okay. You know, I had the imagination, but I had to work on the skills to make sure that especially when you're working in animation, you know, like I say, you're doing so many drawings, you can't afford to waste time on noodling away on one drawing. It has to be very utilitarian in a certain way. And animation really helped me get faster, better, stronger. And one of the things that we do in animation so much is a focus on the anatomy and spending time with life drawing. And so when I started teaching animation, life drawing became one of my main sources because I wanted to show people how important it was to get all the structure right because you know you can you may be able to draw the coolest scowl on batman's face but if his body's like this it's not all that freaking cool right, right. <laughs> so you want to make sure the body looks cool you want to make sure that everything is built properly in the structure of the drawing so yeah i would say i spent a, a lot of time i did three years of commercial art and then i i uh, went to the school of hard knocks my brother and his uh, partners at delaney and friends all went to sheridan college so they had all graduated so they taught me the sheridan method the minute i was there so i was just this kind of rookie go run the ground get coffees go get this and try drawing you know and i was already an artist so i just started studying under them and a year from then i was you know working on things like teddy ruxpin and the raccoons and about two years after that i was directing so you know it's okay. just about putting okay, in hold on and, this is know, a canadian a piece of canadiana here yeah. You worked yeah. on the raccoons for like the CBC? Yeah, the raccoons. I worked on Teddy Ruxpin. I worked on uh, Tales of the Mouse Hockey League. <laughs> it's like all these different Canadian things to get started out in Ottawa and Vancouver. And then I was fortunate enough to start getting, you know, really cool directing gigs and, and storyboard gigs. And I uh, storyboarded Storyboard Supervisor on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the first one. Yeah. And then I worked on, uh, gosh, just so many. I, I got a reputation for being an action adventure guy because I was such a superhero fan. Yeah. Between that, I was at the same time sending in submissions to DC and to Marvel. 
And then when I got the VC gig, uh, suddenly the VC animated world opened up to me and I started doing a lot of that sort of stuff and doing storyboards and that kind of thing. And so then that just kept opening the doors for more. And then so I ended up directing Voltron Force, which is a sequel to Voltron, as, uh, as we all know that character. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, uh, chaotic, based on the card game. So I've been very, very fortunate in my career that I've kind of gotten this pigeonhole that I actually wanted. I wanted to be much more the action adventure guy, the superhero guy. I wasn't super interested in doing a lot of the kid stuff. I did a lot of it because yep. you got to make dough and you, know, you got to pay the bills, but yep. I, uh, I love doing the superhero stuff. So that's fortunately where my career went. Lucky. That is crazy. I, I, I'm going to go back for a second now. Now. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about speed and I've asked you if today you wouldn't mind putting a piece of paper in front of you sure. and, uh, and, and blue sky. So throughout this podcast, by the end of this podcast, there's going to be something on that piece of paper. Okay. And so, um, and so I'm just going to give you a blue sky, whatever you want, whatever you are inspired to draw, um, throw it down there. And by the end, we'll show the viewers as to what we've got here. And it's funny, I can't even see you, so I won't even see it till the end, but. No, that's true. <laughs> um, true or false? This is, this is a real, um, you know, talk about nerding out. Uh, Cyril Sneer, the, uh, the, 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 the Canadian villain that nobody ever knew that, that you know, I mean, my goodness. <laughs> the raccoons. I will um, tell you this, I gotta be completely um, candid about the raccoons experience. <laughs> I... I left them like within a hot minute as soon as uh, Teddy Ruxman came on board. <laughs> I'm basically what you call an animation whore. <laughs> yeah, I was working on, on raccoons for maybe a month and <laughs> it was a funner cartoon. It had a way bigger budget. It was an American company that was using uh, the Canadian company to do it. So they were paying super high. I, I knew all the animators that were over there. so. Yeah, I, I jumped out of records pretty quickly. Well, I I can't say that anybody would necessarily blame you for that, but uh, the fact of the matter is, you can say you worked on the raccoons, and to a good two, three dozen of us, we will all go, yeah, when we hear that, and that's that's pretty exciting to me. That was my that was my big audience. <laughs> oh man, Canada Broadcasting Corporation funded cartoons. Um, Absolutely, I. Uh, and the Teddy Ruxpin, I mean, you talk about, I remember that toy. And I mean, at that time, there were a lot of uh, business models where they would throw a toy out on the market and then yeah. throw out an accompanying cartoon to, to, at the end of the day, just drive the sales of the toy. Um, the Teddy Ruxpin cartoon, I remember watching that. My brother used to watch it after school. And I mean, you know, you had this talking bear that you could get and that was cool, but you guys really added a whole, you added a whole mythos to Teddy Ruxman. Yeah, they, the, the script writers were phenomenal. I didn't have anything to do with the writing at the time. I was pretty new. So yep. I was, uh, I started off as a animator, intermediate animator. So I was just doing you know, the backgrounds and doing all the posing. Yeah. I went up to senior very, very quickly. Uh, just because, again, it, it had so much action adventure, and that's really where my wheelhouse was. I really know how to push the characters and make the poses a little more dynamic. A lot of people, when they're, working on younger kids stuff, they tend to be kind of soft in the approach, but the the client actually wanted it to be a little more ramped up. They wanted young boys and young girls to both be excited. So so they wanted to pose like that with Teddy, not, you know, this kind of thing. So yeah. it, it felt a lot better for me. So I was very, very uh, fortunate to, to get that gig. And, you know, we did two seasons of it. I have to tell you, man, there are so many hidden Easter eggs in that series. <laughs> there is there's a, one episode where the, the elf village goes on fire and every single elf is an animator in that building. I, everybody, I pose out every single, I put their faces on everyone. They're all screaming and yelling. And I've seen it about a million times. And I just kill myself. And there's Bob Jakes and there's James Wolfeld and <laughs> all these guys I worked with. So it was very fun. They gave us a lot of free reign and we, we definitely ran with it, man. <laughs> well, that's one of the things I love about you is that, is that you are so fun when it comes to things exactly. like this, you are really, really uh, Easter eggs and things like that. Um, right up, right up your alley. Uh, you love, you're so creative. Um, and I, and yeah, one of the many things I love about you also, you could be the new lead singer of steel Panther if given the opportunity. Which <laughs> I, I, I love the idea of that. Have you always been in bands? I have. That was kind of my dream come true. I, you know, I think it's funny. I'm so blessed in my two, you know, to be able to, draw for a living and, and have the opportunities that I've had. So believe me, I never looked that gift horse in the mouth, but like um, most young men, I wanted to be a rock star. And so I worked really hard on that. And you know, I cut a couple of the CDs and oh, look at this. There's one. <laughs> right now I'm holding up a 
DMV Paper Dragon CD, which is one of the ones I did with this band. And right. then there's another band called Medicaid and Kelly holding up that. But anyway, Medicaid and Kelly. Medicaid and Kelly. This girl that we knew. I want to meet her. her. I'll tell you, this is so funny. She uh, she would get so stoned instantly on one puff of a doobie. Now, yep. you kids at home, a doobie is marijuana. And <laughs> I, so Kelly was the sweetest girl in the world. She's going like, why don't you guys go out, take my car. And we go, you want to get a little higher? She <laughs> medicate Kelly and off we went to Oval. <laughs> it's a terrible thing off about it, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> oh, that's, do, do you still know Kelly to this day? Oh yeah, I still talk to her all the time. Kelly's an absolute doll and has been a dear friend of mine and she, we laugh about it all the time. She loved the fact that I named a band called Medigain Kelly. She thought that was the funniest thing ever, so. One of my favorite bands of all time is a band called Faith No More. And uh, oh, yeah. Faith No More did a song called Anne Song. And, and it was based on this gal. And to this day, they, they shot the video in her apartment and her and her friends were in the video. And to this day, she just, uh, you know, sings the praises of, of that experience. It's, it's not often that you get a song or a, a never mind a song, a full right. band named after you. Look at Kelly. I mean, she's probably hashtag wanted it all, but she couldn't have it. There you go, man. My boys, I love those guys so much. Yeah, they're um, awesome. So, okay, you always liked the superheroes. You were always a DC guy? Yeah, I mean, to me, DC was the, the thing. I mean, everybody is entitled to their own opinion. I've never been the Marvel or DC guy. I love the Marvel characters. I love the Fantastic Four. I've always been a big Captain America fan, even before yep. Chris Evans freaking nailed that character. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah, I've always been a big fan of Marvel Comics, and I never felt that there was... I, I don't really understand the whole, you're a DC or Marvel fan, that's like saying I like football, but I don't like hockey. It yeah. Doesn't, it, it never really rang with me. Yeah. So um, I've never felt that. But DC is the start. We don't have any other superhero without Superman. We don't have any other detective comics without Batman. We don't have any other magical characters without Captain Marvel or, yep. or Wonder Woman. Um, intergalactic peacekeeping uh, Star Wars comes from Green Lantern. You know, Absolutely. all these characters started these things. Julie Schwartz, when he took over that, the, the sort of rebirth of, of these things in the 1950s, going into the 60s, which then spawned the Marvel Age, was yep. creating all those ideas that then Marvel took great advantage of and tweaked them and made the characters much more human. It's yes. really hard to relate to a guy like Superman who nothing can go wrong with him. I mean, how bad is his life other than he can't get Lois, you know? Right. It's a multimillionaire. How do you relate to that? Well, then Stan Lee comes up with this multimillionaire who's an alcoholic who has all these problems, right? And then Tony Stark. So he gave all these different nuances that made those characters so much better. And that's why people gravitated towards Marvel so dramatically in the 60s and 70s. Yes. But then DC caught up and suddenly you had guys like Frank Miller doing The Dark Knight Returns or Batman Year One, and then you had John Byrne doing Man of Steel, and yep. suddenly we got these deep dives into what it would mean to be those characters. And now the way that we understand Batman and the tortured psyche and that, that all came from Neil Adams and Danny O'Neill in the 1970s, more so than Bill Finger and, and uh, Bob King. They explored that, but by the time that that comic was doing so well in the 1950s, they couldn't get back to that because it became much more campy, and the 1960s show didn't help. So suddenly Batman found himself sort of trapped in this thing where Stan Lee and Jack Kirby could create this myriad of characters that had all these sore spots and pain and anguish. The thing was a creature that, you know, was trapped inside this thing. Well, that's great storytelling. So I was really happy to see in the late 60s and 70s when DC kind of got on the side. And then in the 80s, when they really, really took off with it and hired guys like Frank Miller, Alan Moore, all these guys to really deep, deep dive into those characters. And suddenly, you know, you realize that Superman's not just this godlike character. He's this science fiction story that, that is so much more complex. And then yeah. they can do a movie like Superman, the movie, and suddenly it starts off as a science fiction adventure and then becomes this homespun story of the, the thing and a superhero story at the end. That yeah. understanding of the genre allows us to actually appreciate those characters more. So for me, DC is that you don't have any other characters without DC first. So it's. Oh, it's and I, and I, like I say, I couldn't agree more. Um, I, uh, I love I love the idea of Superman and, and some of these other early um, early comic book heroes being so mythological. You know, yeah. it's almost a modern mythos, a, a North American cultural uh, mythology. And like you say, as that has um, evolved, then it's gone down to the place of, of the idea of, um, you know, the everyman or bringing it into the, to the real world and how it has evolved. And... Um, <laughs> this is the thing I love about you too, is that yeah, you're knee deep in the industry. You're so far in this industry. You are where so many comic collectors 
like some of the experiences that you've had, like you told me the first time you went to the DC studios in New York and, oh, yeah. and, and just some of these experiences that you've had, um, uh, you're still as big of a fan as we are, as, as you were when you, before you got into it. And that's the one thing that I love so much. Are all artists who write for these uh, or who draw for these uh, monthly publications, are most of them fans the way that you are in your experience? I think so. Yeah, I really do. Um, we all have different degrees of it. Some of them are more purist. You know, they'll say, you know, uh, you know, the company's keeping me down because I want to explore these characters and I want to introduce a, an idea of something that might be something controversial. The one the most important thing that you always have to remember as an artist or a writer is that this is their sandbox. These are their characters and you play within that sandbox. So they'll send you notes about what you can and can't do. And it becomes very, very rare. I think some of, the, some of the writers specifically get very frustrated by being limited as to say, well, how about if Superman loses his temper one day and destroys half a metropolis, you know? Maybe right. that's a good story. Well, sure, but we don't do that with Superman. You know, those kind of things. Yeah. So it can be a little bit difficult. So I, I think as I've gotten certainly um, further and further in my career, I've now become this kind of veteran of the industry where, you know, a lot of people sort of associate me with, stuff from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And then I see a lot of the stuff that 2000 to 2020s where people are being much edgier and are trying, trying to, you know, turn things on their heads. And I, I applaud that. I think it's awesome. But it also results in them being a little less satisfied with the fact that you're drawing Superman or you're writing Batman, you know? Like, those are those yes. moments where I just catch myself and go, huh, what do I have to complain about? This is freaking epic, right? So I, I find that... Um, as, as was I, when I, the very first Mike, when I first uh, got signed to DC, I was doing Vengeance in the DC Universe. And yeah. that was based on Batman the Animated Series and Superman the Animated Series, but they hadn't done Justice League yet. So, so it was I that Paul Dini yeah, um, style? Yeah, and all that. The so big chests that go into the smaller waists, the real, yeah. yep. But in our particular case, we still had to work within the DC continuity, where they didn't. So Superman and Batman, those series, they could exist outside that. They didn't even have to have Superman and Batman or any of those things. Right. Whereas with us, they wanted this to be an introduction to kids for all these heroes. So mine was Kyle Rayner, Green Lantern, or Wally West Flash, you know, and, and so all those kind of things that were happening. Um, Nightwing uh, was, you know, estranged from Batman, so we couldn't have them working together like they did in the series. So there was a lot of things that we had as things, but we got to play in this amazing sandbox. For me at the time, as an artist, I was somewhat frustrated by the fact that I had to draw in this style that wasn't necessarily mine. So I had a long conversation with my editor and said, look, I'm seeing a Bruce Tim and I ended up speaking with Bruce on a couple of occasions and, and he loved Jack Kirby and a lot of stuff reflects his Jack Kirby touch and Alex Toth. And these are two guys who were big influences on me and Wally Wood. So all I did was just focus on those influences on Bruce Tim rather than doing Bruce Tim. And so I could make my pages a little more Jack Kirby or I could make them a little more Wally West or Wally Wood rather. And, uh, and that allowed me a, a certain leeway. But yeah, I, I definitely felt frustrated by that. So I relate to those artists and those writers who say, I feel confined by the fact that I can't express myself. What I realized much later, after the book had been canceled and I moved on to Justice League Adventures and all that, was I was talking in my own language. I just wasn't necessarily using the line work I would have done, but I was picking the panels, I was picking the frames, I was picking the camera angles, all those things. So that was my language. And I always say the same thing to writers who get frustrated. I'm going, you do have a chance to speak in your language. Just there are limitations on that. Just as if you had to write a follow-up to Stephen King The Stand, well, you can't just start writing in your own style. You still have to reflect what Stephen King intended. So it's the same thing there. And I think once people kind of get that on in their mind, they're a lot less frustrated and a lot more excited to be doing it. You know, and I think that's a there's a there's a bigger uh, message in what you're talking about, John, too. I'm, I'm a huge David Letterman fan. I think about Letterman's original show that came on after Carson. Right. And uh, the, one of the first things that he and his writers were given were a whole bunch of things they couldn't do that were similar to Carson and the Tonight Show back then. And um, they could have chosen that to look at as a sandbox, but they didn't. They chose to look at that as, as to say, okay, now how can we really flex our creativity? Because a series of obstacles have been given to us. How can we still express in our own voice with our own talents what we want to get across And uh, despite these obstacles? And the obstacles actually made for a sharper, uh, more creative show. And it sounds like the same thing is happening with, uh, happened with you in one of those life lessons that you learned. Well, I actually think so. And you know, the thing that uh, Letterman um, thought at that time, and I, I like yourself, I'm a big fan, I've read a lot on them, was they were thinking, okay, well, these aren't 
the things that the obstacles. These are the the roadways to take us to what we want to do. Somebody's wearing a Velcro suit, or somebody's in you know got an Alcatraz suit and jumping in the water. Right? Sure, that was insane at that time. But I remember watching it and jump on a trampoline and slap himself against the wall. I'm going, <laughs> that's freaking genius, right? Yeah. Because the limitations allowed him to think beyond those limitations. Hundred percent. I think that's the the nature of, of any successful artist, writer, uh, comedian. Anything is as soon as you go, okay this is stopping me from doing those things, then you stopped yourself. Right. But if you think to yourself, hey, that's a limitation, but that means I can do this, man, the sky's the limit. Ah, oh, that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, talk a little bit about, again, again, I mean, I think everyone will understand now. We just, this is turning into a geek out session and that's fine. Talk <laughs> to me, tell me the story about the first time that you showed up at the DC studios in New York and what okay. was in there at the time. I don't know if it's changed since then, if they're on the Warner lot now. Well, yeah, they're in LA now. So this is uh, this is back in the day. Yep. Yeah, was how old I am. But um, Midtown Manhattan, right? Yeah. So they're in Manhattan. They're literally across the street from the Ed Sullivan Theater at this point. Man. So two of my major things that I'm absolutely freaking in love with: DC Comics is across the street from David Letterman. Yep. I, I can't even believe that this is the case. I knew the address, but I didn't know it until I was there. It was my first time in New York. They flown me in for this meeting, and I'm giggy, giddly, or giddy, giddy <laughs> with excitement. And uh, I'm standing, you know, I, I follow the address and across the street, there's this beautiful big black uh, building with black windows and everything. And that's DC Comics and Time Warner. And I look across the street and there's, you know, the late show. And of course, later I find out that my editor at the time was good friends with Biff Henderson. And so getting tickets to the... <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but, you know, you don't know that at the time. No. So I just stood there at, at, I think it was about two in the morning in Times Square across from these two amazing things just losing my mind. The next morning I go to, to DC comics. I get to the elevator, got my portfolio. I had already gotten the job, but as is my way, I tend to oversell. So I already had 30 or four more drawings that I was doing in my portfolio to show. I get to the elevator and the guy sees my portfolio. This is how cool this was. Very classic New York. It's got an elevator guy. He's wearing the hat and everything. He's taking me up. It's crazy. So he says to me, he goes, you going out to DC comics? I said, I sure am. And he goes, yeah, I can tell by that big suitcase. And I said, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to stop somewhere if you don't mind. I think you're going to like this. And go, what? He goes, yeah, I'm just going to stop somewhere. Just watch. So we get to the seventh floor. He opens the doors and it's Mad Magazine. Are you kidding me? Up, and there's this big bronze statue of Alfred E. Newman. And every issue of Mad Magazine is on the walls, all the way down of this wall, just filled. And I'm like, oh my God. And the door shut. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, that Simpsons uh, episode. That's when Bart Simpson goes yeah, to New York. That's exactly, exactly what happened to him. Dude, I'm telling you right now, it just was absolutely mind blowing. So my heart's going, I'm going, this is it. I'm, I'm here. Doors to DC Comics open up. And here's what you see. DC Comics back in those days in, in Manhattan was built to look like you were on the top floor or on the rooftop rather of Gotham City. So the, the doors open and the carpet looks like stippled stone. And there's a, a, a night, night sky that's all Gotham City, and there's a bat signal projected into the sky. It's not painted, it's projected. You walk around the corner, and again, still the same rooftop thing. The the uh, You know how on the top of um, roofs there's those two big fans? They sit like this. Absolutely. Yes, that's the front desk. Two big fans. She's got a plate, a, a plywood plate over top of it. That's the receptionist. In the corner is a full size Michael Keaton bus or um, costume. Filled up with a mannequin that looks like Michael Keaton standing there like this, and, and Michelle Pfeiffer on the other side. I'm standing there just losing my mind that this is happening right now. That this is this is the lobby of, of DC Comics. She says to me, "Oh yeah, Casey, be right with you. Do you mind if I just take you to the meeting room?" I said, "No problem." So as I'm walking through, I'm going by every Aurora model that's ever been made of any DC character in this uh, display case, fully painted, fully articulated, amazing. She sits me down. There's a guy sitting at the end of the table reading a newspaper which I think is kind of weird and uncomfortable because I don't know who this guy is. So I, I look a little again and it's a statue of Clark Kent sitting <laughs> and it's full, he's wearing cloth and he's the paper's real. You know, like, he's wow. just, like, so, and then Casey comes in, takes me in. We have this incredible meeting, tells me I got the gig. So I'm just up and down, super excited. He goes, as is our custom, walks me over to this wall and they have every single one of their characters drawn by the original artist on the wall. So there's a Bob Kane Batman. There's a Joe Schuster Superman. There's all these, you know, John Broom, uh, Green Lantern, all these just incredible moments, Carmen Infantino, uh, Flash. All their uh, tra traditional guys, you know, Plastic Man by uh, Cole, you know, like CC Beck, Captain 
And they said, first book you're going to be doing is Justice League. Which character do you want? I said, I'm a Superman guy. He goes, go sign Superman. So I oh. Superman on the wall. That's what they would do for everybody who got signed. It was freaking remarkable. Uh, that is, that is fantastic. Um, there are yeah. so many things that I could comment about this, but I just want you to keep talking about these things. This is, just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's amazing when you get to kind of, um, I believe that when you accomplish a dream, that's when you open up the opportunity to dream about other things. Agreed. And, um, and, and, and that's, that seems to have been what's happened with you because I mean, that was day one <laughs> led to a whole bunch of other awesome days and awesome experiences since then. And uh, I guess one of my questions, we talk about DC a little bit here. Um, what's the thing that you either are most proud of or most excited about that you got to, to do um, experience that you had, whatever, whatever that might be uh, top one or two moments of being at DC. Okay. Um, one of the great ones um, Okay, I've had a couple that are just phenomenal, but I'm a big Superman guy. He's had dozens, everybody. Okay, he hasn't had just a couple. I'm asking for the top two. When we get together, he tells me story after story after story. He's had dozens of them, just letting you know. Okay. I've been been super lucky that way and super blessed, uh, Mike. And uh, so the first one was, um, I loved the character Lobo, but Simon Uh, pretty much had the the sort of the corner on on Lobo. He he was the guy they always went to whenever they wanted a Lobo comic. Well, then they introduced Superman and Lobo into Superman. And they wanted somebody to do Superman versus Lobo in the animated style, and they went to me. I had told my editor several times, God, if I ever get a chance to do a solo Superman story, that's me, man. Because I've done them in, like, in the Adventures of DC Universe quite a bit in Justice League, but I really love Superman. So yeah. I got that one. David Michelinie, phenomenal Superman writer, phenomenal Wolverine writer, phenomenal Marvel and DC guy. Yeah, absolutely. Incredible script. And I just took off with it, and we got nominated for an Eisner, and I was just, you know, this is one of those things where you just go, oh, my God, this is so cool. Yeah. That one was great. The second one was, I'm a giant Scott McCloud fan. I don't know if you're familiar with the stuff, but he wrote Understanding Comics and Reinvented Comics. He is sort of the guy that a lot of our writers and, and uh, artists really look to for a guy who sort of helped set the course for how comics can move into the 20th century. Right. He asked for me specifically to draw a Justice League comic with him. And the script was amazing. And, you know, when those kind of moments happen where you go, this person is, you know, who I hold in such high regard is asking for me to draw for him. That, uh, that was kind of mind blowing. And I guess the third one would be, I did Death of Comic Book Guy for uh, The Simpsons. We did oh. a six series with Ian. Yeah. And we got nominated for an Eisner on that one. And I was absolutely sure we were going to win the Eisner and we didn't. <laughs> was who, sure. Do you remember who won? I was like, I can't remember the time. Like, it was actually an independent. It was really great. It was a great book. Certainly deserved it. Yeah. But you know, we were in a, a kind of an unusual category because we were in best children's book at the time, which I really didn't think the Simpsons were children's books. Yeah. That is but a weird, the that, Simpsons is always fall through the cracks when it comes to that. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So it's fine. So I think the ones that won, um, I it might even have been leave it to chance, which is a phenomenal book from Graham Morrison and that, but I can't remember who won it at the time, but Scott McCloud and I, we were talking and he's, we were talking about having done that one thing and I'm going like, I'm, I'm nominated for the size right now. He's going, oh, good, man. I saw that. You're going to win it. I'm like, I think so too. And nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to be nominated at the top of the craft, I mean, that, that that's just um, what an honor, honor that is and the adventures and things that you have done since then. So, so let's move out of DC a little bit. Um, and you've, you've done some, some work in the movie industry too. I mean, I know you haven't been a Marvel artist, but you've, you've worked on, You've worked on some Marvel properties in the film film world, hey? Yeah, I had I had a, a great story. I've told Mike this story before, and those of you following at home, allow indulge me on this one because it's a pretty funny story. And if you're a Patrick Stewart fan like I am, I'd love to tell you the story. <laughs> so I was at the time working for a company called Second Son, which was doing video games, and um, they were I, I had a reputation in Vancouver as being a kind of go-to superhero storyboard guy. So if they had a superhero property, we were just getting started at doing that. So one of the first ones that they had done, um, Brian Singer had done X-Men. So they did X-Men too. And I'd gotten to know Guy Diaz, who was the um, uh, art director quite well. And uh, so I was going to do storyboards on that. Unfortunately, I ended up having to, to wave off because I got to direct a, a show called Chaotic, which was great. But at the time, I was super excited to be working on, on X-Men and especially excited to meet Patrick Stewart because I'm a big Star Trek fan. Yep. And so I met Hugh Jackman and I met Anna Paquin and I met Famke Jansen and it was all very lovely. And I don't get too flustered by those moments. We're all just people, but I still, you know, Patrick Stewart, that was the guy, right? Yep. I had it in my mind. I thought, you know, the, the episode, the inner light, remember that one on Star Trek? 
Is that the one where, where he goes and lives an entire life? In yeah, the, it's a yeah. probe gets attached to Picard's head, and he lives that entire life on another planet that's doomed to, to pass away. So, and he gets the flute. That's where he gets his flute from. He gets from. the flute, and he learns all that. So they, it informs so many other episodes there. But it's an acting class. If you're an actor at all, you can just watch Patrick Stewart play young to old man, and it's just phenomenal. They don't do a lot with makeup. It's all him. You know, and it's just an incredible acting class. So all I'm thinking is, when I meet Patrick Stewart, instead of going, I love this, I love that, I'm going to be cool. I mean, got this down, man. I'm gonna, I got this rock, and I'm gonna say, Sir Patrick. I just want to say the inner light was transcendent. It's something that should be taught in every acting class. Just you know how to take 45 minutes and and literally expand an entire character. It's something you should be proud of. And if if you're not, you know, allow me to to tell you how proud you should be because it's just a great piece of work. So this is going on in my mind. This is what I've got ready. Absolutely. I'm working on this storyboard with Guy Diaz, and suddenly I hear behind me. I don't think Jager would say that. <laughs> oh my God. And I turn around and it's him. And he's dressed as Xavier, you know, the whole bit. He's not in the chair, but he's walking along with Brian Singer at the time. And my heart's just going. I'm going, inner light, inner light, you've got this, you've got this. And the idea sees this. And he looks at me and he goes, You all right? I said, I'm just really excited. And he goes, You want to meet him? I said, Oh, yes, I really do. I'm going, inner light, inner light, this is it, this is it. Yep. He walks up and he says, Sir Patrick, uh, this is John Delaney. He's one of our storyboard artists on, on the show. He's a big fan. He'd like to meet you if that's not a problem. And he goes, oh, it's very nice to meet you, John. And I do this. Big fan. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, all right. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, inner light, inner light. <laughs> I'm like, <"Inner> light. <laughs> pretty exciting. <laughs> what, a, what a cool moment, though. It was fun. I mean, I have no regrets. I don't think, you know, if I I'd roll off this big dissertation to him anyway, that he might have remembered that any more than you remembered. Big fan, but, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the, 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 best, the best version of that story would be you telling him that and then he looking at you going, the inner light? What's that? You know, like, I did so many of those episodes. And you must experience that too, though. Like you must experience fans coming up to you because sometimes, you know, we do a little bit of work. I've had this happen even with the podcast. Um, and I mean, this is such a small thing for you. You sometimes fans get so deep and they, 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 they meticulously learn every single little detail and they'll go to the creators, the person who actually drew the frame and yeah. say, Hey, what about this and that and this and that? And then they threw in a whole bunch more depth. Um, than you may have even thought at that time. And isn't that the beautiful part about this medium of comic books? You know, you really couldn't have said it better, Mike. Um, it's one of the things that I absolutely adore about going to Comic-Cons. For a while, I got sort of turned off by Comic-Cons, um, specifically in the late uh, 2000s. Yeah. They've gotten so preoccupied with the movies that they weren't really talking about Comic-Cons, comics anymore. The Not dealers true. were pulling out. You could get, you know, a lot of movie merchandise, but it just didn't feel like the things. And, and that slowly come back to being uh, comic centric, which is what brought me back. And um, I had a, a, a small uh, a publishing company, Comic Stream, that I was trying to get out there uh, doing that. So I was happy to see that it had gone back to that, but I did get a little turned off on that. So what's happened, which has been so great, is it's about the fans again. And they want to tell you about what they took from that or, or how they saw this character. And I'm fascinated and tickled by every single drawing having so much significance to somebody else. And, you know, from a commercial aspect, just trying to get a deadline done, sometimes you're not quite as committed. You are in the roughs, but, you know, when you're cleaning it up, you're not really as committed anymore to that emotional um, identity of the scene. But the fans sure are. You know, and they'll talk to you about stuff like that. And, you know, this one guy said to me, you know, he goes, you know, that scene in, in Superman vs. Lobo, which we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Superman has to leave the earth. He's been infected with a, a disease. He's basically a typhoid Mary. So he can never walk the earth again. This is before he and Lois are married. So he's taken off in this rocket and he has basically one chance before the rocket leaves the atmosphere to contact somebody. And he calls Lois and she's at the Daily Planet. And she goes, hey, Smallville, you know, what's going on? And he says, you know, I just want to let you know, I, I'm going to be out of town for a little while and hopefully I'll get back soon. But if not, you know, I, I love working with you. He's trying to be all, you know, casual. And she's going, hey, okay, you know, well, whatever, you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll cover your work until you get back. And she's kind of unaware of it. It's this beautiful, heartbreaking moment that David McElhinney wrote. And I'm thinking, you know, and I, I try to capture it in his expression and hers. And this fan comes up to me and says, oh, that's my favorite part of the comic. I'm going, oh, thanks, man. That really meant a lot to me, too. He goes, no, but the thing that I want to know is, and I said, what? He goes, when he's calling Lewis, what phone number did he use? Wow. I love that, though. Wow, right? yep. 
I love that they actually were wondering about that. And I went, I, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But, but cool. I'm assuming he had her on speed dial. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. They go deep. And that's what we do. Like when we're fans of this stuff, we go really deep. I dig um, it. We're, how am I doing for time? Just out of curiosity here. What am I? We're 40 minutes. Okay. So we're not, we're not too far over. I was worried that this podcast today was going to go over. Can I, can I have your assurance that, uh, that you'll come back one day? Like, cause I mean, okay. you and I have, as you know, right. we're scratching the surface. Um, a lot of the men out there. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the comic book um, audience demographic because okay. you have a very unique perspective on that. Um, sure. Now, would you say when you started, you know, vast, vast, vast majority of fans are men. And is it still that way? Or have you seen a shift over the last in your career? Oh, it's a been a tonic shift. I mean, the amount of girls that are at comic cons now and the amount that they are, invested in the characters you know when i first yeah. started again i've been doing this almost 30 years in comics yeah. so it's, it's been a while yeah and um, it used to just be guys you know and as the girls did show up they were dressed sort of in cosplay that the guy wanted them to dress up and it was a girlfriend and they were kind of into it but not really into it now you know costume has become its own thing there's a bunch of cosplay players that actually uh sit out there and sign autographs so and i love that i love the celebration of the of all those things in this culture but what i really love is that the writing has become so much more nuanced and has become so much more inclusive to female and to male voices. And so you get writers like Gail Simone who are phenomenal writers. Yeah. Just happens to be a woman. She's just a great writer. That's to me, that's good writing is all it is, you know? Yep. And so there are so many of those great writers out there right now or Nicola Scott, a phenomenal co uh, comic book artist. You know, just her stuff blows my mind. Just happens to be female, you know? Yeah. It should never be that distinction, but it was for a long time. And that's melting away now. And now we're starting to see this celebration of, of all these different writers and, and artists and people are less inclined to, to say, oh, well, this is a female artist or a male artist, you know? If I can liken it even to what Martin Luther King was saying, which is, you know, I long for the time when we're judged on our merit, not on our color of our skin or our sexuality or any of those things, right. it's the work, right? And uh, that's why I think I really, love what's going on in comics now. And there's still work to be done. We still need to get a little bit better at it. There's no doubt about that. But even for all the guys who may, you know, grumble and mutter and say, you know, uh, you know, it's best man for the job. It shouldn't be a woman or a man. Well, that was great for a long, long time, but there weren't a lot of opportunities for women. So it's wonderful that we're actually opening up that opportunities for women to express themselves as artists and writers because they have a, a unique voice that needs to be told. And, and even if they're just telling the same kind of stories that we're doing, they shouldn't be persecuted because they're women. They shouldn't be persecuted because they're anything other than good or bad. If you're right. a bad writer, I don't want to read your stuff. If you're a great writer, I don't care what sexuality or sex you are or any of those things. It matters nothing to me. I only care about the characters and the stories. So that's what I love has happened in, in comics now. And that's probably the thing that drew me back to Comic-Cons more than anything else was this inclusion. You know, now when you're sitting in a green room, it's a 50-50 split between men and women. It did not used to be that way. It was just yeah. tons of guys, you know, and smelly and awful. And you know, <laughs> <laughs> women are better. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they really are. Um, yeah, I, 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 you know, it's funny. I, I think about the idea of of going to um, a convention or something like that, where my wife is uh, not at all impressed or engaged with any of the content. Versus yeah. going to a place like that where my wife actually gets very excited about these things. Candy and I just finished, um, we just went through all of the Marvel movies in chronological order. Nice. And it was, yeah, and it was her idea. Like, wow. like are you kidding me? I was, I was already a fan of hers. I was up here. Like, I'm way up here now. <laughs> <laughs> and she's excited about the Snyder cut of Justice League and she's excited like, started on that. I'm so freaking stoked. Oh man, me too. Oh yeah, and we could go on that. And maybe we should finish off talking a little bit about the movies right. and, and how that's changed things. But but like I think about when I was in my, you know, teens or 20s, that was a part of my life I couldn't share with with, you know, the girl that was on my arm. It just wasn't yeah. it was it wasn't something that was there and I just I love that she is um because the stories are iconic in my, in my opinion. Again, you, go, you can take it to a point where they're even mythological, right? There are versions of mythology. They and, are, and, mythology. And they, they are inclusive. They do include everybody. And, and for it to be a closed club for as long as it was, um, I'm really happy to hear what you're saying about how on, on the top levels you're seeing, you're seeing um, all this inclusion happening. 
Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because there are many, many people who rebel against it. And again, we'll say stuff like, well, you know, uh, it's the best person for the job. And of course, we all agree with that idea. But if sure. the best person never gets a chance because of the fact that they happen to be a different gender or a different race or a different sexuality or any of those things, yeah. that's not fair. And it doesn't give a chance for all voices to be heard. So the toughest part about comics was it was traditionally appealing to young guys. So they thought, well, guys should be writing this. They understand, right? But if you're writing Wonder Woman, what do I know about, you know, being a woman, truly, you know? I know some things, obviously, but <laughs> I, I can't speak to that. And I can't speak with a real voice on that, right? So suddenly you have somebody who comes in and writes it. And, you know, George Perez did a phenomenal job writing Wonder Woman. And it was very, you know, uh, robust with, with mythology and same with Brian Azzarello. But when you listen to a, like, a Gail uh, Simone, you know, the, the nuances when she's writing Batgirl, you know, like suddenly Batgirl's thinking about her phone and thinking about the things that she might have been thinking about that they wouldn't have thought to write into that character. Yeah. And I just, I love that. I love that subtlety and the nuance. And, and I think that we have a tendency to just want to say, well, no, it should always be this way. And that's what makes things not progress. You know, the movies in Marvel would never have been any good if they kept following the, the storyline of the comics. But no. once you pass someone like, like Robert Downey Jr., suddenly Tony Stark makes sense. You know, even in the comics, it was hard to imagine why this guy would flush his leg down the toilet. But when you start to see all his daddy issues and see all these things, all the subtlety that, brought, that he brought to that role and his complete disregard for any kind of um, um, responsibility for the actions he's making as Stark Industries and yep. then to have that, that trauma happen. You know, Stan Lee and... and he did his best to kind of kind of capture that, but it took an actor to really sell you on it to go, oh, I get it now. I get why you would have that thing. And I think that uh, the same thing can be applied to all the various different things. The Snyder Cut is a great example of this. I've been a, a long proponent of love of what Zack Snyder did with those movies, but I understood it was just a little, for lack of a better term, ahead of its time. People really wanted the action adventure, the happy-go-lucky, everybody gets along, and we're all winking and saying, hey, we're wearing costumes. Isn't this funny? Yes. Where Snyder said, no, this is serious. This guy's yep. parents were killed in front of him. A bat flew overhead, and now he thinks he's a bat. It's a yep. psychotic break, you know? And he played him that way, right? Superman was this guy who was actually afraid to show people his power. Said, what would that mean to my family? And all these things. All those subtle nuances. So I was a big Zack Snyder fan, a big excited idea that the DC universe was going to move in a very different way than the Marvel universe. And ironically, in the comics, the Marvels were way more serious, and the DC tended to be a little more upbeat, whereas in the films, they, they kind of went the other way. So I was excited by that. And unfortunately, he was just a little ahead of the curve. So yep. people are far more interested in seeing that now and all the subtlety because of the fact that Marvel's had so much success, but we're starting to see it be a bit repetitive. We're starting to go, okay, Dr. Strange feels a lot like Iron Man. You know, it's the same. There's, there's a formulaic now. part. To yeah, it. yeah, it's starting to become a thing. And it doesn't mean that there's an opportunity to move beyond that. I think there is. Yep. I love the fact that now people are going, okay, let's see what Zack Snyder actually had in mind. Because we yes. saw what Josh Wedden tried to do, and, and that's a thankless gig that he got given. You know, I mean, like, you know, trying to fix this, this film with notes from the studio. God knows I've been there as the ships. But yeah, I really love the fact that Zack Snyder is now getting a chance to say, here's what I actually had in mind. And I got a feeling it's going to sort of set a precedent for what DC Comics films can be. And that's why I love the multiverse aspect of it that, you know, Michael Keaton and Ben Affleck and Robert Patterson can all exist. And yeah, have multiple Batman stories in that, and we don't have to be so gigantic and so. Oh my God, it's got to be this guy is Batman. No, it doesn't. There are multiple Earths in the idea of the DC canon, and that's existed since the 1950s. Absolutely, so, they were the first uh, ones to to do that. And and it's funny how Marvel it seems now is starting to try and copy yeah. that a little bit. The name of the new Doctor Strange movie is uh, the Multiverse of Madness, and, yeah. and they they do talk about it. But, but the idea that there was one Superman who could meet another Superman is not a new idea. That was something DC was doing in the comics decades ago, half a century ago. Uh, the first time they teamed up with Earth 2, which is the original Justice Society, Superman and Batman were there meeting the current Batman and Superman. Yeah. This is a, an idea that DC pioneered. I, I definitely get why Doctor Strange um, plays into that and that character can, can run that. But, you know, from the purest uh, comic book guy myself, it kind of annoys me a little bit because I think that's a DC thing. And I don't yep. think, I mean, I, you know, what is Marvel? Marvel's doing? certainly not known for it in their story. Yeah, and I think it's, it's jumping on board an idea here that, that DC should have really been given free run because this Flash movie is going to blow people's minds when they do it. 
Well, I think they've positioned themselves in a, in a way to do that. Having so many actors have played Batman or Superman, for example, gives yeah. them that kind of ability to stretch that way. They've had so many different versions of it, whether it be in the TV show, animated series, um, all of these things. And, and I, love, I love that the uniqueness of each company is also expressing itself in the uniqueness of their, uh, of their film you could have said it better. You know, that's the thing, like less of this, oh, you know, Marvel does this and DC sucks or DC's better and Marvel, you know, that's of that. Just let's figure out the best way to tell these stories. If it makes sense for the Flash to travel through the multiverse and encounter Michael Keaton, Batman. Yep. And it makes sense for Ben Affleck to still be there too. Yep. It makes sense for Robert Pattinson to have his own world where people are dressing up in Halloween costumes as Superman and Wonder Woman, maybe aren't Superman and Wonder Woman, maybe that exists in comic books in his world. That's cool and nuanced and beautiful. And it, it allows every director and every writer a chance to just have free reign and run around and go, cool, I get to tell these stories any which way I want. I think that's fucking awesome. Fucking awesome, I tell you. <laughs> it is. Um I could do this with you all day. I've been given the signal that we're, it's time to close things up. Have, well, you, uh, have, have up. you drawn something? I did. I drew the Wizard Shazam. Oh my God. Did you really? Okay, hold on. They're turning it so I can see. Shazam guy. Oh. He's facing his profile. There he is. The Wizard Shazam. Oh. <laughs> my man. Oh. Thank you, um, John. I just I I, I want to thank you personally for 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 doing HeCast. Um, that you didn't even for a second think that I was taking advantage of our friendship uh, and asking you to be on here. Um, I know that I you're you excited about what Candy's building. Yeah. I and, love what you guys are doing. With this I want to support it 100. I think you and Candy are doing some amazing stuff, and I think um, this is sort of a first salvo for a lot of people to kind of get an idea of what this can be and this kind of dialogue. And I think that's really, really important. And I'm super proud of the work you guys are doing. I'm very, very proud to be part of the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you, sir. I, I can't, I can't thank you enough. We will do it again. Um, when, when the, he changed it to uh, community, the, the he cast community is going up and strong. We'll get you in there and you and I can maybe do a Q and a or something like that. We'll, uh, we'll do some really fun stuff. But John, I just want to say thank you so much for, for, for being such a good friend. And I just, uh, I appreciate the hell out of you, man. Me too, you brother. Let's get together and pound some beverages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. As soon as humanly possible. Absolutely, please, yeah. please let it be soon. Um, Protocol stop, but uh, you know what? We get, we get virtually drink. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's been, it's been good to even just see your face and hear your voice today. You brother. Um, there we go. That's another episode right there of, of he cast. Um, so grateful for everything that uh, he changed is doing and, and all of the, the things that are coming from this. If you haven't downloaded the app, go to the Apple store or the Google play store. He changed it. Uh, go to he changed for the information. And uh, if you are in the app, come see me in the he cast community. Very, very cool to have you with us today. Uh, for John Delaney, my name is Mike Chisholm. Thank you so much for being part of another episode of HeCast, the official podcast of He Changed It. We'll see you next time.